Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the Executive Director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and I'm here today joined by Ron Rather, who leads the privacy and cyber team at Troutman Pepper. His understanding of technology led him to be involved in legal issues that cross normal law firm boundaries, including experience with data security privacy, patent, antitrust, and licensing and contracts. Ron has assisted companies with privacy compliance issues for more than 20 years and has successfully defended companies in more than 200 privacy-related class actions. Ron, welcome. I want to explore aspects of the recent Uber and Twitter cases involving their CISOs and what you see as the ramification of those cases for other companies. Let's start off by asking you to briefly describe what happened in those two cases so we provide a foundation for our discussion for our listeners. Great. Thank you, Jody. And I appreciate being part of this podcast. For those of you not aware, or maybe you had your head under a rock, the <laughs> Uber CISO was recently convicted of conduct related to an incident that happened back in 2016, um, sending quite a uh, dramatic ripple through the CISO community, affirming a lot of the concerns and issues that have been percolating uh, in that group uh, for almost 10 years. Uh, Likewise, um, the CISO Twitter recently testified before Congress about Twitter's uh, cybersecurity performance and and profile. They're interesting because both cases help us understand better the current situation of CISOs and where they find themselves both historically and presently within their organizations. Uh, Really, I think, fomented on this culture of fear that has developed around um, cybersecurity. So if we dig a little bit deeper, you know, what happened in Uber uh, was really not unusual back in 2014, 2016. So you guys might remember that uh, Uber had an incident, a data breach in 2014. The FTC was investigating that incident. In the midst of that investigation, Uber had another incident. This time, threat actors came forward uh, and said that they had gained unlawful access to Uber's environment and had demanded uh, a ransom. What Uber did in response was convert that ransom demand uh, into a request under their bug bounty program. Uh, You guys might remember that in 2016, bug bounty programs were just starting out becoming uh, the the hot topic, the rage uh, for us in the cyber space. I don't think Uber necessarily got in trouble for for doing uh, this under their bug bounty program, you know, paying the criminals around $100,000. But uh, where they began to get in trouble is they had the um, cyber criminals enter into a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and there was a lawyer involved in that process. And ultimately, that NDA 
um, had the hackers representing that they had not obtained or exfiltrated any data. Well, this was complete opposite of what the forensics demonstrated. Ultimately, there was a change in the CEO. The, for those of you following uh, Uber at that time, you know their CEO was having uh, more issues than just cybersecurity. There were allegations of hostile work environment, sex harassment, and the like. The new CEO comes on board, um, gets a briefing, learns about the fact that the 2016 incident never resulted in breach notification, uh, made public announcements, and as a consequence, the FTC and eventually the Department of Justice got interested. The CISO of Uber in 2016, obviously no longer the CISO, uh, was indicted and eventually convicted by a jury. You know, what, what's really interesting to me, Jody, when I, when I look at all of, uh, of that scenario with respect to Uber and then eventually Twitter, is that I'm not sure the CISO was necessarily acting outside of normal behavior. <laughs> Um, so, you know, yeah. the CISO was telling the, the CISO what to do. CEO was telling the CISO what to do. And the CISO was following those directions so to do the bug bounty program. The CISO got somebody from the, from the general counsel's office involved to review the NDA. And that person, the general counsel's office, signed up on that NDA. So I think we've all heard, you know, chief incident scapegoat officer. You know, sometimes the, the other explanation of what CISO stands for. And that's really something that came up within the industry. I'm sure that a lot of CISOs out there were thinking this is just another attempt to scapegoat uh, the CISO when, you know, leadership in the company, you know, made decisions that either right or wrong, yeah. necessarily within the CISO's control. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I agree with you that I'm not sure that a lot of what was going on there was different than in other incidents with other companies, except the fact that with this NDA, that was a bit of a, a twist that I don't think was in other incidents that I'm aware of. And the bug bounty, are you aware of other payments in bug bounty through bug bounty programs? I mean, actually bug bounty programs are, you know, had been, uh, fairly common. I think it's an interesting question to ask whether the bug bounty programs are going to survive the Uber conviction. Uh, I'm not aware of, you know, companies necessarily taking a, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a ransom where uh, demand made by a threat actor and converting it into uh, right. something covered by their bug bounty program. But the bug right. bounty program itself is meant to elicit gray hat hackers, you know, to, to, disclose vulnerabilities that they've identified uh, within the company's environment and you know, do so for some remuneration uh, legitimately through the bug bounty program as opposed to trying to do so right. more like a black hat hacker right. and, and try to gain ransomware. Well, I, I see those as a very important part of our whole cybersecurity posture, though, because what the, the guys and the, and the women do in the bug bounty programs really does help keep the software more secure. But this was a, really a misuse of bug bounty. You shouldn't be paying ransomware out of bug bounty programs. I agree with you about a culture of fear and see it dramatically increasing risk for companies who have such a culture, which is almost everybody, I hate to say. But what are the consequences of this culture of fear? And is there an escape hatch for the CISO? 
And I think to answer this question, we have to look a little bit about how this culture of fear evolved and sort of who is responsible for it. And then we can, we can talk about consequences and cures. The culture of fear is, you know, really, I think, arising from all of us. We're all somewhat responsible for this. So I, I handled my first data incident in 2005. Uh, and, you know, not, not long after that, started being asked to speak on um, cybersecurity issues and incident response. And we all start our presentations um, with fear. How much does it cost? What are the negative consequences? You know, a call to action based on the risk. Uh, I think CISOs and their functions uh, have been traditionally seen as risk managers. You know, they're, they're responsible for quite a wide variety of issues and concerns. They're, they're tasked with ensuring nothing bad happens, which we know is an impossibility. They got to keep the lights on and make sure everything works. They got to enable the business and do so in a cost-effective way. You know, there are some check-the-box compliance regulations, and frankly, they're often seen as roadblocks to productivity and flexibility. So, to your your question, what is, what is the consequence? Uh, well, the consequence is CISOs oftentimes end up being defensive. So, in their in their proactiveness to identify risks. And they create paper trails that, frankly, overstate the situation or the consequences of the company. They're building on fear to be able to get funding, to be able to get folks in the organization to pay attention, um, to listen to to what needs to be done from a cybersecurity perspective. You know, in, in many ways, they're they're like you know my youngest child. You know, I have three daughters, and you know sometimes the youngest has to act out a little bit just to get attention. And unfortunately, that's the environment that we've created. CISOs. And I think the solution gets us out of this culture of fear and frankly also moves the cybersecurity ball forward. What do I mean by that? Having been in this industry for a long time, Jody, I think you can appreciate this as well. We we seem to be chasing our tail to a certain extent. A lot of the themes, a lot of the issues get repeated over and over in the last 10, 15 years. And so we, we really need to this is a great time, I think, and Uber is a great sort of splash of cold water in the face for us to think, or we need to look at this and we need to be thinking about doing this differently. And it really comes down to better governance. So we got to dismantle the silos that are currently in place, you know, between the CISO and the general counsel's office, between the business and marketing and the CIO and the CISO. There's, there's a lot of silos out there right now that I think are preventing us from being able, being able to work effectively together. And I think likewise, it's um, using positive features to motivate us to do the right thing. In other words, what are the benefits of having good cybersecurity and addressing those themes you know, before the board, before the company leadership, um, and then frankly, ultimately to our, our customers, our clients, our, you know, the, the individuals who really need to be part of uh, the entire organism in order for us to effectively fend off these yeah. criminals out there that are trying to exploit our you know and victimize our clients and our you know and each other well you mentioned some of the things that organizations can focus on to better support CISOs and their critical roles there may be others and you mentioned the general counsel um so with the Uber situation, I mean, I it, it's a legitimate question to say, where were their governance 
policies and procedures. Why didn't that attorney in the general counsel's office escalate this issue to the general counsel? Instead, he was, you know, helping with this NDA. Joe Sullivan, the CISO, actually made the changes and negotiated the changes, but no one told the general counsel about this, apparently. No, um, so far as I understand, only Travis Kalanick knew. But you also mentioned that something about the interaction between general counsels and, and CISOs. What's the role for the general counsel? Well, I think it comes in a, a number of ways, but it goes back to breaking down these silos and realizing there's a natural partnership between general counsel and CISO to advocate, again, with the positive consequences of paying attention to cybersecurity. I mean, our objectives naturally align. Um, so first of all, I think general counsel's office needs to understand the issues. They need to have spent time learning about cybersecurity, about the technology. Um, so whether that's technical controls, you know, in addition to the administrative controls, we need to be more focused than on just process and procedures. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that approach has not really been effective for us. Um, and, and, and I'll get to that more to that in a moment. We got to build the right culture. Right. Right. So it needs to be such that the CISO does not feel like they're screaming in the wind. And I think the biggest area where, you know, we've all been falling down is thinking about standards and frameworks. Uh, and that's really where I think the general counsel's office needs to roll up their sleeves and get involved with the CISO. And what do I mean by that? So we really don't have prescriptive standards out there. We're starting to see some regulators suggesting, for example, MFA ought to be in place. And you and I know that MFA is kind of a general term. And, and frankly, how I implement it and what actually MFA means is sort of in the eye of the holder. It's sort of like when we were dealing with encryption. You probably remember way back when Nevada um, passed a, a law that said if you had your SSNs encrypted, you know, there wasn't a data breach. And, and right. we were all talking about encryption and people thought encryption was a silver bullet. Well, now, Today's silver bullet is MFA. You hear all the regulators and people talking about MFA. But we know that's not really going to move uh, the ball forward in any meaningful way. And, and what we're really still wrestling with is um, how do we as organizations come up with a metric, a yardstick, a standard by which we can measure ourselves and demonstrate that the company is moving forward in a positive direction. And, and that's really where I think the GC needs to get involved uh, or if the GC doesn't have the knowledge, you know, outside counsel, because we have to start working through, let's just take the CIS 18 framework, for example. You can pick any framework, right? There's a lot of subjective decisions, a lot of, you know, balls and strikes that need to be called. And just putting that within the CISO office and, and asking them to do it on their own, I think is a recipe for failure. So sure. general counsel, we, we need to roll up our sleeves. We need to learn the technology. We need to learn the issues and we need to be a part of the solution and coming up with, uh, again, and I, and I think this is going to help us all in the long term, a process that doesn't necessarily have the black binders and you know, the check the box and do I have the right process and procedures in place, but starts to set forth in documentation, the maturization that an organization is going through to continually work toward hardening their cybersecurity profile. Right. You know, and you started by talking about culture. And 
I think we gloss over that a lot. And culture tends to be just a word. And it's like, oh, yeah, top level policy, tone from the top. But it really is much more than that, as you've been talking about. And it's so important. I think as much as the general counsel needs to be involved, though, there needs to be cross-organizational involvement among the business unit leaders and the other officers of the company and have a cross-organizational senior team that at least meets quarterly to discuss privacy and cybersecurity. And if they, even if they walk in the room with no agenda, if they sit down and talk for 10 minutes, they're going to come up with some topics that they need to be coordinating on. So I don't know that I agree the general counsel needs to learn the technology and all of that, because that's like saying the CISO needs to learn the law. But to me, there needs to be more cross-organizational communication so that everybody brings their expertise and knowledge and skill set to the table and then help manage this as a as an organizational issue, I guess, instead of, and that's really a culture that comes out of that. I'm afraid we're going to start seeing a trend toward CISO whistleblowers because they'll see it as a way of saving their reputation for management not paying attention instead of taking the fall. Do you agree with that? And and if so, what can organizations do to address this? So, so I think if we don't change the culture, I think that if we continue the silo approach, right, um, where the CISO is really not understanding what the GC needs, the GC is not really understanding what the CISO needs, and the business, you know, sees the CISO is simply an impediment to you know, achieving functionality in their product or uh, being able to offer a service and generate revenue. In other words, just a, a cost center. Unless we start changing those cultural issues, um, I think we're going to see more and more CISOs, if not become whistleblowers, at least resign publicly from their, uh, in a public way from their position. So you know, we recently saw that in the Dallas School District um, where they had an incident and the CISO was not happy with what was being disclosed uh, with regard to the breach and then publicly resigned. With which company run? It was a CISO for the for one of the school districts in the Dallas, Texas area. Oh, I didn't hear about um, that. But didn't the CISO of Twitter just resign? Yeah, I mean that there's some complications around. Yeah, I mean I think Twitter, you know, with Musk taking over Twitter, there's been a lot of changes. Uh, right, but at, the at C- least that I'm I'm aware of in terms of that, the the whistleblower was not actually the one that testified in Congress was not the CISO. No, 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 no different. Um, yeah, different CISO. But um, I was just reading that the some of the senior people resigned from Twitter because they said this is a train wreck waiting to happen, and we don't want to be responsible for it. And the CISO was one of them. I think that's uh, what I. What I read, anyway, I wondered if you had heard it. Well, but I think it's like you were saying, it's not uncommon. This is not going to be an uncommon reframe. Right. Um, I think as CISOs continue to see the risks that are out there for them personally. So, for example, the Uber CISO looking at possibly 10 years in prison, that's necessarily going to drive CISOs when they don't feel that their voice is being heard when they don't see the changes that are being made within the company um, to harden the cybersecurity profile, making these public announcements and exiting in a way that doesn't allow the blame game uh, to trace back to the CISO that resigned. Um, and, and, and the 
environment that allows that to happen um, is what we have to begin to focus on and cure. Yeah. So that, you know, again, that's what we've been talking about. It's a little bit of everyone being involved. But I think it also starts to speak to the skill sets that we're looking in terms of the CISO. Right. Um, so some of the organizations that I'm working with, you know, I'm talking about a chief compliance officer role and that we have the traditional CISO. Uh, and what I mean by that is traditionally people have looked at CISOs and thought about technical skills. So somebody who understands the difference between IPS and IDS, uh-huh. um, you know, somebody who has that technical knowledge and really isn't looking necessarily for somebody who presents well in front of a board. Uh, or from my perspective, makes a good witness in front of the regulators uh, or in litigation. And so that's why I think organizations have to start also looking at the skill sets they're looking in their C- for, for in their CISOs. And maybe, like you said, it's not changing the nature of um, who it is that you know, has the technical skills and, and that knowledge. It's a matter of creating an organizational structure that allows the different voices to come together, understand each other's perspectives, and build a process uh, build a regime, build a culture that's going to move the company forward in terms of being more safe in the cyber environment. And I think that's a that's a goal that we all share. There's no one that's saying, I want to be vulnerable. I want a, a criminal to be able to exploit our environment. I want a criminal who's going to drag our company's name down uh, in terms of goodwill. Right. But, but those sort of fear tactics we've been using for years and years and years haven't been effective. And that's why I think we need to take a step back and ask why. And it, and then as we begin to ask why, I think we start looking towards the solution. And the solution is, is uh, you know, we got to be part of, the, of uh, building up the company, not just saying something, not just pointing out the fears and the negativity. It, it's sort of not different, Jody, than when people used to think of some attorneys, right? The attorney is the one that comes into the meeting and always says, no, you can't do this. Here's the risk. And, and good good attorneys have learned to, to come in with a solution, right? Not just saying that there's a risk, but actually proposing right. um, a how solution to, to that and, and how to handle it. Yeah. And it's interesting, like when you look at the Phoenix Project, that the book that was written, I don't know, 15, 16 from a ops perspective, when you look at the reference to the CISO in that, book written again by an IT ops person sounds a lot like what I was just saying people thought about attorneys. Right. Um, so so CISOs need to think a little bit about what they're doing. I think critically for us as attorneys and general counsel, we need to really step and be part of the solution. We need to help uh, create that change in culture. We need to not just say it's a CISO obligation. I think we need to roll up our sleeves, step into the melee and work towards you know coming up with the solution and not just being part of the problem. Well, one thing general counsels could do, or even outside counsel, is to point out to the legal counsel uh, or the company, you shouldn't have the CISO reporting to the CIO because that's a segregation of duties issue from the beginning. And this is what so many CISOs they can't get visibility to the C-suite. They can't get visibility at the board level because the CIO comes in and does it all. And in almost every company I've worked with that has had that reporting structure, I've seen the internal conflicts where the CIO gets involved in security decisions, to choose, insists they pick one vendor over another without understanding the security implications, insists that 
the network be architected in a certain way, even though there was serious considerations for security in that. And it is just always a problem with the CISO having the independence that he or she needs. So I wanted to ask you, that's my view of one thing is that needs to happen internally, but what can the CISO do internally to help change the current situation of little access to the board, inadequate budgets, and being in the bullseye? Well, you know, I don't think, it, you know, it's a, the CISO, it's really understanding your position within the organization, understanding the goals. But frankly, to me, it's more of uh, the other individuals within the organization you know, lifting up the CISO. The sort of the current situation I think we're in is because the CISOs oftentimes feel like they don't have a voice. Yeah. That they're not being heard. You know, and as a consequence, um, they just ratchet up the volume. Right. So instead of saying, you know, for budget purposes, I need, you know, money to implement these three tools, they'll say, I need money to implement these 10, thinking they're only going to get approval for three. The consequence of that for me is, is an attorney for the company is that document's out there and everyone is second guessing after an incident occurs. And one of the big areas of second guessing is, well, why didn't you fund those seven areas that the CISO asked for? And it's probably not even legitimate that the CISO needed those seven, right? The CISO just padded their request because that's the culture that we've created. Likewise, when new CISOs come into organizations, and I'm sure you've seen this, Jody, they always immediately begin criticizing the past CISO. Um, They're talking about failings and things that didn't happen or shouldn't have happened and how they're going to come in and fix, you know, why they were hired. And I think we got to change that as well. You know, we got we have to create what I suggest is a process, a culture that lives beyond our changes in CISOs. So let me say it more directly, more directly, right? We're going to change CISOs. It's a very competitive environment. We know that there's a shortage and the CISO may not be leaving because of their whistleblower. They may be living because they're going to get paid more. And we know because of that shortage, there's a lot of folks out there that want to become CISOs. They want to rise up. Uh, They want to, you know, naturally improve their situation. Uh, And they're going to come in and they're going to uh, sell why they're going to do a better job than the prior CISO. And that's what's creating a lot of these, you know, bad documents. It's creating some bad culture for us. How do we fix that? Well, let's have a five-year plan, right? Let's, Let's have good governance. Let's have the GC. Let's have compliance. Let's have the business. Let's have a plan and a program that extends beyond who is the individual and the personality of the individual CISO. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really what, what I think we need to do as an organization. And, and that, to me, transcends whether the CISO reports to the CIO. What we need to do is break down these silos and say, you know, it's not just the CISO's obligation and duty to make sure the company's secure. The board the CEO from the top down, everyone needs to be advocating for a culture that transcends one particular office. We're all responsible for making security better within our organization. Right. You know, you had no way of knowing this because it won't be posted until tomorrow, but we just recorded a podcast with Rachel Briggs and Richard Brinson from the UK, they're from a company, Savanti. And he has been a CISO himself for a long time. 
and she talked about the cost of a bad CISO. And he said they estimate the cost of a bad CISO hire to be at least 7.6 million pounds, which would be, well, now about $7.6 million with the way the pound has been going. But um, they were talking about that very thing. A lot of junior people are in CISO roles and a lot of people just come in and rip up what the other CISO did. And you put your finger on something that I hadn't heard anyone talk about before them. And so you may want to hear the, listen to their podcast that gets posted tomorrow. Information security, best practices and standards spread risk across an organization. They make the business owners responsible for the risk of their systems and the data that they bring to the organization. So they require them to be involved in everything from access to applications and data to controls that protect them. This brings in business line managers. In companies big enough to have a risk manager, they can help too, because they are the ones that buy the insurance and need to help manage the risk. So there's that's the business owners and the risk managers as two additional roles. Are you seeing law firms get more involved in helping clients understand cyber risk management? And do you think the SEC final cybersecurity rule will help impact this? Or will it will it primarily be about credentials and regulatory filings? What are your thoughts on that? So I, I don't see law firms generally getting involved. One of the things that we're doing here at Troutman is sponsoring workshops and tabletops where CISO, the general counsel, um, other stakeholders in this process. Uh, that the companies feel comfortable involving and engaging in these conversations. We're all getting together and working through how we better communicate with each other. How do we create this culture? How do we move beyond using fear uh, to motivate companies? Uh, How do we do a better job of getting the board and the executive team engaged uh, to improve this culture? But likewise, Uh, really figuring out what's the best means to move the ball forward. How do we make the company more secure? And how do we do so in a way that allows that organization or that company to frankly be more competitive, maybe even a differentiator within the market uh, in terms of security? And we know after solar winds, that's a big stake, a big piece, especially in government contracting. In the context of having those conversations, we'll pull together better governance. And that includes proper documentation. That includes coming together and developing a five-year plan, thinking about how the organization moves to better maturity on cybersecurity issues. And then, frankly, Jody, if if an incident happens, and we know it will, it arms us with documents, with discussion points with witnesses to better have that conversation with the regulators. Uh, And then to your question on the SEC, what the SEC is really looking at is building this bridge between operations and the board, building this bridge between operations and the individuals that are providing disclosures and reporting, making sure that uh, the left hand, that the head knows what the left hand's doing. And I think part of what we're doing in terms of these workshops and tabletops will help bridge those gaps and create the type of structure and reporting that's necessary to meet the SEC rules that are eventually going to be coming out. Right. 
I was hoping they would get this out by the end of the year, but other people I talk to tend to think it'll be in uh, 2023. But I think it, it will help move the needle a bit. We're about out of time, Ron, but thank you so much for your time today. But I wanted to ask, do you have any last thoughts you want to share? Well, you know, I think we need to be making more thoughtful collective decisions on information security. And, and that will result in having the appropriate controls and, and risk-based object- objectives in place. You know, we need we need to take some of the lessons we've learned in incident response where we're doing tabletops and we're learning how to communicate across different stakeholders within the company and, and begin to apply that proactively. So even before we have an incident, you know, making sure that, you know, we develop plans, we're implementing them, we're testing them, and more importantly, we're communicating across all these stakeholders to make sure we have a common vision. Uh, and then ultimately, I think that will provide the CISO with executive team and board exposure and support because we have to eliminate these silos, we have to break down these barriers, and we have to bring the CISO, you know, into a place where uh, they're not forced to be a whistleblower. And then more importantly, we're not at the end of the day, if something bad happens, using the CISO as a scapegoat. Um, there's got to be a collective effort. And I think we can achieve that. We just need to change some of the paradigms out there that we've used to sort of define our, all of our roles. Are you finding your clients are receptive when you hold these webinars and have these conversations? Do you find they're receptive to this? They definitely are. I think oh, we're good. all, you know, we've been, we've been struggling. Um, everyone's been struggling with these issues. Again, I think people want to do the right thing. And in many instances, they think they're doing the right thing. And unfortunately, the culture of fear, and, and I think the regulators are just as to blame for this as anyone. They're using their stick to make examples of companies. Um, and not everyone sees themselves you know, to be at risk, like, like some of these big companies that are getting nailed by the regulators. So we got to change that culture of risk. And I think once we have these workshops and people start talking and engaging in a way, we start building different structures for organizations to think through these issues. It naturally changes the culture within the company. And then, as I was mentioning, Jody, it results in us being able to put in place you know, the right plans that are going to, you know, implementing them in the right way, testing them in the right way, acting appropriately when things happen. All of that puts us in a much better position when an incident happens and the regulators come knocking on the door. Well, and, you know, I want to make one point here. It's not all just the regulators. With Uber and Joe Sullivan, that was DOJ. And that was just stupid. That was just a stupid mistake that they decided to go pick on Joe Sullivan instead of pointing at Travis or the board or the C-suite and saying, why weren't you managing this better? I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think in a way it goes back to point, why do we need a scapegoat, right? So what was the message that was trying to be sent? Because obviously Sullivan, in my opinion, was a good, you know, he was a good, decent CISO. I mean, he got it right after he left Uber. Um, he acquired another position, you know, one that was frankly. Um, right. You know, you know, you know, one one that that you wouldn't just give, you know, to to an up and comer CISO or somebody that was doing the wrong thing. Um, So, you know, that's where I was saying is that I don't think the stick is working. I think the regulators have focused way too much on enforcement actions, trying to use the stick to send messages. 
they haven't put any carrots out there. And I and I understand getting you know rulemaking and getting some suggestions from regulators as to what should be done. It's short of doing that through an enforcement action, which is what they're still doing. I mean, if you right. if you look at you know some of the recent settlements out of the FTC, you know, going after the CEO. Um, and, and branding the CEO for 10 years. I mean, that to me, they're still trying to make law. They're still trying to send signals to the rec- to the industry through these discrete regulatory enforcement actions. Right. We need some carrots. You know, like I said, why not give tax breaks to companies? So if you invest oh, in cybersecurity, I know. why not give a tax break? Why, you know, why not have some funding out there? Um, why uh-huh. aren't we working cooperatively against what should be our common enemy, which are these criminals? that are out there trying to exploit technology that, frankly, is technology we need to operate as a functional society. Well, it doesn't make sense to me, the current, the current culture and framework. Right. The fear is not working. I agree. I told you five minutes ago we were out of time, but here we go, zing off again and have a whole other conversation, and we could do it again, but I'm going to discipline myself and say, <laughs> say thank you so much. This has really been such an important conversation. And it really will add to our intellectual capital and thought leadership in this area. So Ron Rather, thank you again so much. Thank you, Jody. I appreciate your leadership in this area as well. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.